Hey, welcome to episode 38 of the Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast, the motorcycle podcast for the rest of us. All right. Hey, on this episode, there's a few, quite a few things I have in my notes, but you know, we don't always get to all that good stuff. But what we do have is a white elephant in the room. What is that a white elephant? Should we start with? Should it be Sturgis? Should it be AB51? Should it be all the flat track news? Should it be Weirtopio, the WIR top 10? I don't know, but uh, let's dig into this episode, and I'm just going to throw a quarter up in the air, and whatever line it lands on, start there. Let's let's do it, shall we? All right, well, let's start uh, first thing first by listening to this awesome song I recorded for the Solstice Slam. Mmm, cigarickin'. All right, well, actually, let's. the first thing I want to talk about is Let's lower the volume on this, Boomer. You have to understand, anytime I or anyone else says Boomer, it's just me looking into the mirror at my own beautiful self. Yes, I I call myself Boomer the producer, so I don't feel so lonely here, doing everything myself. All right, well, the first thing I want to talk about was, let's just start off with AB51, shall we? So... I don't want to keep beating this dead horse with the, with a dead tree branch, but you know what? Uh, everyone's been talking about it and all the good and bad that goes with lane splitting. And AB 51, Assembly Bill 51 here in California, has passed through all of the, the state uh, Senate and Congress and um, outhouses and restaurants and all that great stuff that I had to go through to get to Governor Brown's desk. And it was passed unanimously the last time it went through. Uh, the whole reason that it was never, uh, it was an issue before is because, uh, you know, it was, it was never frowned upon by the highway patrol, but it's technically not their place to make law. You know, they enforce the law, not uh, not make it. So the legislative branch is the one that really needed to go through. And that's what all the complaints that got it, like, pulled off the table before was. And the whole reason that it was struck down as guidelines and the CHP used to have guidelines up on the DMV's website. And then you couldn't find it. And it's, like, always been this gray area where it's like, man, is it legal? I mean, is it not? Is it, you know, what, what the hell? Is it not just not illegal? Like, well, the deal is, is that it, it's never been illegal and now it's legal, right? So if it's not illegal, it is legal. But once it's written down in the books, it's technically law. So is it illegal if it's not law? Hmm, that's a good question to ask. Anyway, so first off, AB 51 is just has a Governor Brown has to sign it. And then lane splitting will be, you know, a, a legality here in California. It's not illegal in some other states. And actually, this isn't the only state where you can lane split. And illegally, you know what I mean? Uh, just not illegally in some of the states. And like I mentioned a few episodes ago in when I was talking about lane splitting in one of our other episodes, I, I mentioned it, you know, uh, probably two handfuls of times now, probably a half dozen, dozen times, is that it's in Washington it is also legal to some extent. I believe it's more along like the lines of filtering, um, or lane splitting on certain uh, road conditions and, and road types. So it's not only California, you know what I mean? It's it's just not, it's up to the 
I don't know. It'd, it'd be really hard to quantify because it's, it's kind of up to the jurisdiction that you're in and it can change from town to town, from state to state. Federally, though, uh, you're allowed to ride in the carpool lanes. So they recognize that, you know, at least motorcycles are smaller and take up less space and should be allowed in the HOV lanes because for the same reason that they should be allowed to lane split. To me, I, I, and I made a comment, I was listening to the doghouse and uh, it's, it's a great podcast that I listen to, by the way. And um, I was just, you know, some of the stuff they say on there, it just, it's one of those things where you love it or you hate it. And it's because uh, so I, I just feel like, you know, I'm talking about lane splitting in general, something that you love or hate, uh, not the doghouse. But um, just some, sometimes when you hear other people talk about something that's near and dear to your heart and that, that you do every day, that you ride, it's just like, you know, you just feel like, I don't know, I guess it's like me talking smack about cheese curds to people from Wisconsin. Like, it doesn't make sense, right? So I was... Uh, wrote them a little thing on their Facebook page. Actually, it was like a long, just shy of a manifesto because I hate to write. But the thing was, is that like, you know, just kind of calling out the the goods and bads of it and the fact that, you know, the the wording of it, it shouldn't be ambivalent. You know, it should be pretty straightforward since it's going to be a law and people are going to be getting trained on it. So it should be without question that you you know, you don't look at that and, and kind of see, uh, hey, officer, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to lane split at 80 miles an hour. You know what I mean? Because that's definitely not what it says. But anyway, made a funny little joke over there. Called out Warren for <laughs> wearing a bikini. Warren Massey, don't kick my assy, please. <laughs> the, the, the only guy on that show that probably could tie me in a knot. And uh, have a lot of respect for those guys. So you wonder why I never use my name on this show. And it's because people would literally hunt me down and give me a shiner. You know, I only have two eyes. And um, there's just not enough eyes for fists around here. The people I talk crap about. So at any rate, I just wanted to say I was I was just kind of giving them a wind up. And my thing was <laughs> that I said is kind of like, you know, wearing a bikini. If you're not the one wearing it. You shouldn't be critiquing how it fits, right? So that's kind of how I felt about the lane splitting thing and the fact that it didn't seem like it was represented 100% truthfully or to the to the wording of the law, just like it was misunderstood, I guess. And, and the fact that I do it every day is like, man, how could you misunderstand that? But then again, like half the people out there don't even want to do it. You know what? That's the other thing. To me, it's kind of like riding a dirt bike. You don't want to ride your bike on dirt. I could, you know, I could understand you don't want to take a, a CBR 1000 RR on dirt, then don't do it. You know, you don't want to lane split. No one's saying you have to just because you can. It's just like uh, any other any other traffic law. No one says that you you have to just because it's a, a possibility. You don't have to turn right on a red arrow. You know what I mean? So at any rate, that out of the way, I just wanted to. Uh, say to, i don't care about the other guys but to warren you know don't wring my neck if you ever see me in person <laughs> so at any rate yeah so ab51 i don't want to talk any more about it because uh it's going to be law here and that's that so hoorah split lanes if you come out to california try it out to see if you'd like it or not but it makes a lot of sense to me especially in the summertime and now that brings me up another another segue into something that I want to talk about was the heat here. I just listened to Adventure Rider Radio, another awesome, 
awesome podcast that I listen to all about motorcycles and adventure riding, mostly, which I don't do a whole heck of a lot, but I still like to listen. They were talking about the heat and they were talking about hydration and how you carry that stuff on your bike. So if you go back, I don't know if they number their episodes, but if you uh, check out today was the 12th if you go and you look at uh you know adventure rider radio for the 12th you'll see an awesome excuse me episode on not only hydration but also keeping cool and people used to look at me like an idiot for wearing a sweatshirt back in the summertime when i was a kid and wearing long sleeves all the time Hey, dude, I'm as white as Casper the Ghost. I would literally, you know, I did brown pretty good when I did get out in the sun, but that stuff ain't good for you. You know, the sun, you need vitamin D, you need exposure to the sun. It's not good to look like an albino naked mole rat, you know, all withered up and shriveled and no, no color to you at all. But you know what I mean? Like that stuff also causes cancer if you are exposed to it too much. And if you, I'm not going to spill the beans on this one because I want you to go to Adventure Rider Radio and give it a listen, but it's called holding your water the episode and it came out uh today august 12th 2016 if you're listening in the future and they talk about the bedouins and that's where when i was a kid that's why i used to cover up and it makes sense if you listen to what they say about layering and actually wearing clothes you know i've been seeing a lot of people especially around here in socal since it's been hot lately hot as hell i would say Uh, i've only been to hell two times but it was about this hot and um you know what? They're just cruising around in shorts and t-shirts. And not that I'm like an at-gat. You know, I, I am at-gat personally. But, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, oh, you squid riding around, you know, in your t-shirts and shorts. Because I understand it's pretty hot. But the the thing is, is that uh, I was talking to the guys at the Veterans Charity Ride last weekend, too. And they were talking about riding through the desert and just how hot. It's like having a hair dryer on you, right? So... If you're out there with nothing on, all your heat is, or all your uh, cool, actually, your your hydration is leaving you because that wind is just blowing right over you and it's blowing all the water off of you. And that's really how your body keeps cool is by sweating. And then as the sweat evaporates, it keeps you cool. But you know what? All your sweat goes away. There goes your hydration. And there goes all your cool sweat that was keeping you cool. So... Uh, go listen to Adventure Rider Radio. They'll tell you all about why um, it sounds contradictory, but you know they talk about hydration and they talk about exposure to the to the air and to the wind and the sun and all that stuff. And it's pretty interesting. So yeah, there goes that. Let's uh, talk about something else. Let's pick another white elephant in the room to talk about. All right. Well, hey, let's talk about Sturgis. Sturgis kicked off uh, last. Thursday, I believe. Was it Thursday that it kicked off? Nah. I guess it was just last weekend it started. And it's going to be going until, you know, this coming Sunday, Monday, whenever people decide to to get up and leave. It's a week-long deal. So it's wrapping up right now if you're hearing this podcast. But it's been going on all week. They've had... I watched the uh, flat track on Tuesday night. That was freaking awesome. Uh, I want to talk about that. I did not see personally, but I did see via the web the buffalo chip they had a pretty cool i would say uh it was was flat track but it was kind of like uh troy bayless's the tar track and tari that he has where it's like a lima bean shape in a way so you do turn right once you know and it was pretty awesome when i was watching some footage rolling sands had out 
And it was just like a who's who of Indian motorcycling out there. Robert Pandya was out there who I met that guy a long time ago. I used to, you know, see him. He was a spokesman for Adventstar uh, at the Long Beach Motorcycle Show for the longest time. For all the motorcycle shows, I'm guessing he probably traveled around with them. But I'd only see him when I'd go to Long Beach. So I'd see him. And he was the spokesman for the show, and he was walking around herding everyone, you know, herding a bunch of moto journalists, like trying to herd uh, wet spaghetti uphill. So it was cool to see him out there flinging the Indian around. He was a spokesman, I believe, for Triumph for a short time, or maybe even Victory, and uh, now for Indian. So it's pretty interesting seeing this guy move. I mean, he's obviously, he's a real motorcyclist. He's a real deal, so it's kind of cool seeing him uh, with Indian out there hucking a bike around on the track. I actually ran into him, too, at the Catalina uh, Grand Prix a couple of years ago, so that was pretty interesting. You know, this this dude's a real fanatic. And, uh, shoot, just a bunch of people out there racing in front of the uh, buffalo chip, like I said, a who's who. Now, that wasn't on, you know, fans' choice or any major thing, any major televised thing. I just, Roland Sands was streaming it to Facebook, so uh, that was pretty cool. And speaking of listening to the doghouse, I, I heard this here, or heard this there first uh, before I actually saw it, which I've been really busy at work this week. Um, Yamaha's been kicking my ass, so... Uh, I've been really busy, uh, doing other stuff not, you know, when I get off work, I just been like, I don't want to see any more motorcycle stuff. So, uh, I have been looking at the news, but I didn't catch this until I heard it on the doghouse that Roland Sands biffed it off stage at the Buffalo chip. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, there's a video of a guy pulling a uh, car up onto an auction block. It's like an old race car, and it was like it looked like it was at a concourse or something. And of course, they have like the checkered flag floor up there on the stage. And uh, uh, they had a girl, uh, two girls, and a couple of auctioneers, and I guess like a total of five or six people standing up there. And the dude pulls his car up kind of fast and slams on the brakes. Well, of course, the checkered floor is just there for decoration, and it's not fastened to the stage in any way because you're just supposed to roll up there and, like, gently stop your car. But when he slammed on the brakes, it shifted the floor forward. It's literally like pulling the rug out from some people. And so it's an easy thing to do when you're out on this short stage with a car or bike that has iffy brakes. You know, those bikes don't have front brakes, and who knows how fast he was cooking it in there. The guy in this car was going a little faster than he should have been. That's why he slammed on the brakes. And so I don't know if Roland didn't want to slam on the brakes or not, but it just looked like he just couldn't stop in time. You know, he he obviously uh, underestimated the power of the brake and the length of the stage and flew right off into the crowd. So I hope everybody's okay. Um, It looked like a pretty good fall, and uh, I didn't see anybody get up for quite a while. So he said he was going to be there the next day for racing, and uh, everybody was okay. So hopefully hopefully they are. Thanks again to the doghouse for putting that in my ear, and and, uh, I went and had to check out the video right away after I heard that on there. So that's pretty cool. But, yeah, so Sturgis wrapping up. And the flat track racing... I'll get to that in a minute because I kind of want to talk a little bit more about that uh, in depth, not just like a quick overview. I kind of kind of want to suss out what's going to be happening here in the next couple weeks with flat track, maybe all the way to the end of the season. It's like some Valentino Rossi and Jorge Lorenzo stuff going on. So, yeah, stick around for that. So 
So right now, I'm going to free flow a little bit, but I wanted to talk about something that I thought was interesting. I wanted to bring the world of motorcycles into the same sort of perspective that we think about uh, money, I guess, and treating motorcycles and love like a currency. So I've been reading a lot of stuff lately on basic income, basic income guarantees and studies and things that they've done around the world. I don't know if it's a hot topic issue right now uh, or if it's even like something that people are running on for election this year. But uh, basic income is just really where you have it's a little bit kind of socialist sounding and a little bit commie (laughs) for for all you Merkins that don't like that. I I really don't like the idea of freeloaders, but basic income, there have been studies on, on people that receive a a basic income in extremely poor countries where studies have actually been conducted. And in cases where people have won lotteries, you know, that aren't like overwhelming or outrageous that are just basically more like advancing them up to the, uh, maybe like assimilating them, I guess, or, or leveling them out against their, um, relevant community. So basically the thing is, is that apparently when they're, when you have a basic income and when you have a community that is not based on, uh, values, you know, like a, like a, um, I don't know. Kind of from what I gathered from these studies is that there's no society out there where you're not valued by how much income you make because income's relative to your output or your value as a community member. All right, and that does make a certain sense on one level. But they were saying that in these super poor countries or communities or even even uh, places where they had done studies and they gave people a basic income. Uh, basic guaranteed income on, you know, they even did studies where they did it by la- uh, latitude and, and above a certain, or I'm sorry, altitude. And in this one uh, part of Lebanon, I believe, above a certain altitude, they gave everybody money and below they didn't. And they, they these, these things increase. And here's how I'm going to relate this to motorcycles. What they see is that when you have more money, uh, people don't treat you, you know, you, you have more self-worth and even if it's given to you, even if it's not earned, you don't feel um, like you're hopeless now. You don't feel like you're at the bottom of the barrel anymore and, and you're just looking up at people and, and you know, you have some sort of self-worth which makes you feel like you can be more productive rather than just feeling like you're just the, you know, turd at the bottom of the barrel that's always going to get, you know, stepped on or, you know, never seen. So it kind of raises people up both giving them hope and making them feel like a valued part of the community. Now they've got some leverage. Now they're on the same level as, you know, some of the people that have a little bit. So it, it I, I, like I said, I, I really don't like freeloaders. We have a system of welfare in this country that I think is, is broken. And probably a lot of other countries don't have welfare, but these basic income studies show that when people have, Everybody has a, a certain set income, and then, of course, other people probably made more on top of that. But if everybody just had some, that they turned out that they were more collaborative. Because, I'm like I'm saying, you know, when you feel like you're the lowest of the low, or when you feel like you're above looking down on everybody, there might just be this disparity where you don't feel like you can really connect to people on a certain level. But when everybody had had roughly the same or a little bit, you know what I mean? At least something. It seemed like people came together. They pooled their resources more. Uh, A lot of places like in Africa and India that they studied, 
set up credit unions. Everybody, everybody collaborated and started making more decisions together. In India, people from super low castes started talking to people from other castes, and they started to collaborate because to see what worked on each level. And this is something that would have never happened if you were just like a, you know, literally a penniless hobo on the street, especially in a place like India with caste systems still in in this uh, day and age. You would have never uh, talked to those, you know guys at all so just giving people a little bit of income gives them self self-worth allows them to come and collaborate with the rest of the community right and another thing that it does is that it brings communities together and people start to share and that made me think about motorcycling all right that's how this all relates to this all of these studies that I read, I thought, man, that can be directly applied to motorcycling. I love the stuff that I see coming out of certain co-op garages and stuff like that. There's a lot of co-ops that you got to pay for, that you got to pay to join. And that makes sense because, you know, it's not free to have a building where you can just go work on your motorcycle and have a bunch of people come over. That'd be great, right? So it does cost something, you know, even if it's just if you own the building, you still got to pay for electricity and taxes and all that stuff. So, I mean, it's not like it's totally free, but it's just cool that there are places out there, you know, I give them props, the places, the places that you pay to learn and you, you pay to be a member of to work because you don't maybe have a garage or something like that, or you don't know how to do it and you're seeking out some help. So you bring your project bike there and all, you know, all this great stuff and you, and you pay to be a monthly member, use the tools, that's all good and great, but there's other places out there where I feel like if we could do the same sort of thing that these studies have proven with basic income, but do it with motorcycle knowledge and community, that's one one thing I will always tout the virtues of the Motorcycles and Misfits podcast and the Recycle Garage in Santa Cruz because they do that stuff for free. Now, they ask for some, you know, if you want to give a donation or whatnot, or if you want to support the the show and really just supporting the garage by um, donating to their Patreon page or whatever. It gives them stuff for like gloves and paper towels and maybe oil, you know, just like general shop supplies. But it's not like they would not make that without your donation. You know what I mean? Like they, they get that stuff, but if you do donate, it just goes straight back into the shop, you know? So it's really cool that that place exists and the wealth of knowledge. That's something when I started reading these basic income things and I was like, ah, man, well, that's cool that communities can come together like that around money. But what about biking? I kind of relate everything to biking. You know what I mean? Like, so I just started thinking about certain things. If you look at our Facebook page, there's a BYOC coming up, which is a bring your own carb. What's better than BYOB than BYOC? You can actually go to a place. There's a, a group up here that does all sorts of stuff like that. Be, uh, bring your own carbs. Um, they do like, uh, you know, you can basically go in and they have like a different clinic. Most of them are free. I can't think of any, I've seen a couple that were like a few bucks and I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure might've been for like oil disposal fee or something like that. You know, I'm not hundred percent sure, but most of them are free. And it's like, that's when it's cool is when you know how to do something and you're sharing that wealth of knowledge, that's our 
biker's income. And that's basically our reinvestment in our community as bikers, whether it be our knowledge, uh, some spare parts we have, our time, our place, you know what I mean? Uh, a garage, you know, sharing a garage with friends, sharing stories with friends. And that's like one of the coolest things. I was just talking, well, I just got a message from Mr. Singsheim today, who is uh, Nitrous Chris, part of the WIR Top 10 RSD bike list. We'll be talking about him in a little bit, but I, I got a private message from him today saying, you know, I never expect you to talk about our group, but it's the fact that, you know, we feel encouraged. And that's the whole thing is, that, you know, the spirit of biking. When I read, when I read stuff like this basic income guarantee, when I see so- social experiments working for other things, whether it's money or housing or this and that, I always think of how it relates back to the people that are doing it and the people that are doing it you know, could be motorcyclists. And if they were like, we could apply this all to, you know, the world of motorcycling, how cool some of this, these proven social experiments would work with other principles in the motorcycling realm. So it was just cool to hear him talking about how he's encouraged and he feels like a good, such a good, cool sense of community. And I was thinking, man, like that's partially what this whole podcast is about is bringing us to each other. Right. And I support that a hundred percent. So I, I, just was thinking about it today as I was reading, um, you know, I've been reading some of these articles over the past week. And, you know, even if it, I'm not 100% sure about how it would work in other parts of society and, and, and on these other levels, you know what I mean? I don't know. This basic income thing, I don't know who supplies the money that all these guys are getting. But as far as bikers' income, I know we all can, whether it's a story, drop a little bit of knowledge, drop a spare part, even. You know, if your friend needs a few bucks for a new chain or something, you throw it to him. I've seen all this stuff happen in real life in these in these communities. And I've also seen stuff like I had no idea that these guys raced motorcycles in Wisconsin whatsoever. I just happened to, you know, engage with the listener one day. It turns out the listener is part of this group. The listener is also an extremely creative individual and an extremely talented uh, fabricator and welder. And it's like, oh, man, I like that stuff. And he is hooked up with some other people on another podcast talking to them about welding. And then he, you know, gets turned on to another podcast about, you know, fabrication and customization. And it's just so crazy that we're all part of this big web and we have all this biker's income to give out to each other. So uh, if you're not for basic income and giving your money away to uh, freeloaders and cheapskates to make the world a better place, do give away some biker's income, man. If you Even if you're a newbie, there's, you know, even your naivete is something that you can pass along and help someone else feel encouraged that they actually know something about biking when they're like telling you about it. So I don't know, take that to heart people. Let's do some bikers income. (laughs) How am I going to segue out of this? I don't know. Creative writing podcast, baby. All right. That was an awesome segue. Let's never do that again. All right, moving on to the next thing I want to talk about is current events that are happening right now. Now, if you are a fan of our Facebook page, uh, go there, check out some current events that are happening on our events page. We try to keep up with everything happening around us, and so we've got quite a few things happening this weekend. First of all, like I said, BYOC, number 30, bring your own carbs. That's going to be here in um, North Avenue 52, 
and also out at Willow Springs International Raceway. They're having the Ramming Speed Vintage and Classic Small Bike Track Day. Now, this is something that I wish I would have hooked up with a little bit sooner. Um, there's people out there already tonight teching their bikes and everything, getting ready for tomorrow. But, man, what? how rad would that have been to take out your vintage or classic small bike out to the track and not have to worry about the dudes on, like, the um, like the ZX-10s or, like, any leader bikes just blowing by you. I mean, you're probably, we're looking at probably, like, 500cc or less or, you know, maybe some slower classic bikes. Who knows? But the thing is, is that these these things rarely present an opportunity to do this you know for for themselves so this group had to actually make it and go do it for themselves because there's no actual track day that's going to say hey all you little bikes come out you know or if you're an old old bike that's a crusty road bike and you want to try it out on the track yeah come do that you know no no, no one's going to be uh rooting for you like that so yeah i was pretty stoked for that Both of those events will be kicking off by the time you hear this, because this is not going to go out until Saturday at some point. Or Sunday. It'll be too, if you're hearing this already, you're too late. So hopefully you've been checking out the page. Um, The BYOC is on there now, but yeah, it's two great things, one great price. All right. Also coming up August 19th is WIR Top 10 Field Trip to The Grove. Yes, our favorite racers from the Real Street Drags at uh, Wisconsin International Raceway are going to be taking a field trip down to the Grove, uh, Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove, Wisconsin, and do a little bit of racing down there. <clears throat> I'll tell you a little bit about it. You want to hear about it? Sure you do, because if you're in the area, you're going to want to go, right? So Friday, August 19th at 4 p.m., they are uh, forecasting the possibility of thunderstorms next week, so bring some rain gear. And uh, these guys, these guys don't stop. If it's rain, if it's raining, they don't care. They, they blast down the uh, strip at like 173 miles an hour. So go check that out. That'll be pretty fun to go see. Also happening in August, the 27th, we're going to see Ha August Nights Flat Track. Uh, that's put on by Hell on Wheels MC. It's been at Paris the uh, past couple of years, but this year it's going to be at Industry Hills Speedway. August 27th, they got classes for everybody and every bike. They've even got a Babes Ride Out class for the ladies, and I believe I read on there that you can read some or you can win some at wild merch and so you got to check that out which by the way babes right out's coming up pretty soon too so don't forget to to uh if you're a woman and you're interested i read that it's 50 percent full so you better get on that get on that good stuff a little bit later in September on the 17th, we're going to have the 9th Annual Venti- Venice Vintage Motorcycle Rally. And it's uh, the 9th Annual, man. Can you believe it? Venice Vintage Motorcycle Club's been around. So uh, September 17th, at 2016, they're going to have a schedule up later. So basically, you can enter to win a 1961 Harley-Davidson XLCH. I'm not even sure what the hell that is. They are also going to have a Miss Venice Vintage 2016 contest, a little pinup girl contest. So if you think you got what it takes, you can go ahead and try that out. You know, just not if you're worn from the doghouse. September 23rd, Wisconsin International Raceway's Top 10 Bikes and Real Street Drags is heading back to Wisconsin International Raceway 
for one of the last races of the year. So, man, this series is drawing to a close. I really want you to be engaged with this series. It is so fun to watch these guys just get down on each other and talk some smack and then see who comes up with the W's once they get down to the uh, other end of the strip, the business end. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Check that out. And uh, after that, October 8th, September, October. Well, this the year is going to be flying by. Uh, October 8th is the uh, Paris Auto Speedway. The Ivy League Flat Track is going to be putting on a half-mile event. Now, they've been putting on a lot of smaller events until recently, and now they're turning up again to host the half-mile with Kelly Inman Promotions at the Paris Auto Speedway. So if you've ever, <clears throat> pardon me, if you've ever been to Paris, you'll know that that's where they race like the uh, the midgets and the modified and all those crazy cool dirt cars with like the roof is just a huge gigantic wing. Man, those guys get down and they fly around this thing and it's just a sound to behold. So it's going to be pretty cool to see bikes flying around that too. Ivy League Flat Track, another great organization to follow and keep track of that series and where those guys are headed or what they've been up to because 2016 has just been an insane year for them. So it's great to see them moving up and moving on and doing some really cool stuff. Now, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves because next I'll be saying it's time for trick-or-treat and whatnot, but uh, October 15th, the 2016 Race of Gentlemen West at Pismo Beach is going to be happening. And uh, I used to pay attention to the East. It was really cool, the Wildwood, New Jersey one that happens over the summer because I like Brittany Olson and I like 20th Century Racing and I believe she's going to be out here at the Pismo Beach event. So it's going to be really cool. There's a lot of... Uh, you know, one of the last places you can race on the beach in California, the last place you can drive on the beach in California is at the Oceano Dunes in Pismo. And uh, if you watched Riding with Norman Reedus, they were out there actually uh, in those little sand buggies. So it's really cool. They also have a huck fest out there if you're into trophy trucks and jumping buggies and all that stuff. They just try to see who can jump the furthest from these dunes. But the uh, the trog, the race of gentlemen, is going to be down on the beach. It's kind of like a uh, drag race on sand. So it's pretty bitching. So anyway, there's a lot of vintage motorbikes and vintage cars. And we're talking like real vintage, not like 70s stuff. We're talking like 30s and 40s stuff. So, yeah, you got to check it out if you're in the area or you're going to be in the area visiting from out of state or out of country. If you're going to be in Pismo Beach in October on the 15th, make your way down to the beach and check out the race of gentlemen. And a couple sand crabs down there named Louie and Arnie. Tell them I said hello. Lastly, by the time this goes out, I hope by the time this goes out, you've already missed the ramming speed uh, event and you've already missed the bring your own carb. So hopefully by the time this comes out, you haven't missed the Peoria TT. Check that out. That's going to be Peoria, Illinois, which is just north of Nogales, Mexico. And uh, check that out. And it's going to be a really cool event. And it's what I was talking about last week, I believe, when I was talking about, you know, next year they're all going to be... There's not going to be singles anymore. They're all going to be twins for uh, the American uh, Motorcycle Association Flat Track Series. So they're going to be hucking twins over over this thing. You know, Hopefully they keep the track around, actually, I guess is what I be, should be saying. But it, I hope they do, and I hope they're hucking twins around it next year. But Henry Wiles dominates that track. Jay Meese has been – I posted up a picture to our Facebook page of him practicing now that I've been recording this podcast for going on about seven days now. 
And so check that out if you get a chance. All right, talk to you later on. Flip that by. Yeah, yeah, wow, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, wow. All right, well, we talked briefly about AB51 in the beginning, and I, I did that in my briefs, by the way. I uh, t- talked a little bit about the flat track just now and some current events. And did you know, speaking of the flat track, I said in the beginning that there was some Valentino Rossi and Jorge, Jorge Lorenzo stuff going on there. I didn't really mean that. There's not any of that stuff going on. And here's why. I listened to an interview recently with Brad Baker, and he had nothing but respect for Mr. Meese, and they're both on 750 Harleys uh, for the mile tracks and whatnot, and nothing bad to say about each other. They've been banging bars and flying around at breakneck speeds, just high-fiving each other after the races. It's so cool to see all the guys, you know, after these hard-fought battles, come in and give each other like a little knuckle bump as they're leaving the track. So basically the only reason I mentioned Rossi and Lorenzo is because one of them's going to a different team potentially next season. Now, they've been talking about, you know, Brad Baker, I really admire the guy because he works on his own bikes. He also has, I believe he has a factory bike that's offered to him, but he uses his bike a lot. Uh, same sort of thing with Sam Halbert, I think. And both of them have had some iffy luck on and off with, with their, uh, their bikes. And basically Jay Meese has just been going ham out there in the field and just been winning left and right. Uh, at least podium every, every, uh, race. You know, if you watched Charlotte, it was such a disappointment to see Sam Halbert toss a chain and then, if, uh, that was at Charlotte Half Mile, and at Sturgis, you know, he's just blowing smoke all over Kenny Coolbest's face, like a fat guy blowing cigar smoke in a little kid's face from, like, one of those cartoons from the 50s. At Sturgis, the disappointment on Brad Baker's face was just heart-wrenching because you could see just how much he wanted, you know, at least a podium there, and his bike gave up on him. So it's really interesting, and amongst all this racing and, and bar banging and stuff that's going on, nobody has really legitimately said that Jamie's is going to be going to Indian next year. So we'll just have to cross our fingers. I feel like it's kind of like a Casey Stoner riding for Honda, testing for Ducati sort of thing, never actually racing for Ducati, but being speculated sort of thing. You know, I, I don't know. I always I always like to wait for stuff to, to happen before I comment on it because you never know. You know, they just, Indian might be wanting to get into this game uh, fast and hard and they developed this bike in nine months, which is like faster than some people have babies, right? And so it's just interesting to maybe they wanted the number one guy to come in and help develop this thing so that it'll be competitive right off the bat next year or right off the starting line, I guess I should say. And it could be that they're just, you know, conscribing, is that right? Is that even a word? Uh, His, you know, talent and expertise in the field to get there, you know what I mean? To be competitive next year and to pull this off, you know, make this a successful racing endeavor and also to, you know, leverage their way back into the uh, psyche of the American uh, motorcycling public. So, I don't know. It's pretty interesting. Uh, having said that, check out the Peoria TT again. Don't let that go um, unwatched tomorrow. It's going to be really, really awesome. Actually, in a few hours, by the time you get this podcast, it'll probably be over. I just, I'm lagging. I am incarcerated right now, so I'm doing this illegally. I had to download an app on this cell phone that I got for like a pack of cigs and uh, $35 in the commissary. So, 
All right, the guard went by. Well, in other racing news, Triumph made some big, big, big waves. Boobies. Underwear. Bananas. Socks. Trousers. Income tax payments. Headlines. In Bonneville this week, when none other than the man himself who competed in the Overland Expo, (laughs) I don't know, the race from Canada to Mexico. Yes, Guy Martin. Why has he been out of the Isle of Man this year? Well... We talked about his mountain bike race from Canada to Mexico. Now he's out in in Bonneville Salt Flats going 274 miles an hour in a Triumph Streamliner. So basically, um, let's see, on August 8th, he, uh, TT legend Guy Martin, piloted I forget what the name of this rocket streamliner is, but it really got me interested again in the Rocket 3 motor because there's two turbocharged ones powering this thing. The previous Triumph record was pretty small, I mean, compared to this. Uh, The official record was somewhere around 245.6 miles per hour, and they had an unofficial Triumph record at 264 uh, both set in the Gyronaut X1. So this rocket streamliner that they have was called the Wolverine Lamb Chop. Oh, no, that's just what they call Guy Martin. I forget what they call this one. And uh, I didn't write it down in my notes. But, yeah, it had two turbocharged Triumph Rocket 3 engines producing 1,000 horsepower at 9,000 RPM. So, I mean, this is just insane. And the the streamliner is basically 25 and a half feet long, 2 feet wide, and 3 feet tall. So, just like a gigantic cigar shooting down the Bonneville Salt Flats at, you know, 275 miles an hour. And basically, it's like a monocoque construction, which monocoque is uh, French or Italian for one piece. So, he went down in a very extremely fast 1,000 horsepower one piece, basically. So, Congrats, Guy Martin. You've done it again. Uh, I believe earlier this year he also set the fastest lap time or speed, overall speed, inside a wall of death. So I think Guy Martin's letting his lust for speed just take over and set all these crazy new records. I mean, I think he's just going to like end it by trying to jump the sky cycle over snake river canyon again and he's not going to play this year. he's i think something's he found something out this year that's why the only reason why he would have not gone to the isle of man why he's doing all this crazy stuff trying to break all these records he has like zero fear of death something's got to be wrong with this guy he found out that he's got like some weird crazy disease or something i bet you anything so at any rate congrats to uh, triumph congrats to guy martin you guys done bitching and in other news uh the honda proving grounds uh this this was open from like the 90s i want to say until 2010 when it went up for sale for like a ridiculous amount of you know money for a piece of tarmac out in the desert i forget how many acres this thing is but it's freaking gigantic right it's like literally they have a a race car or they have a high-speed oval out there i believe they got a track out there. I forget exactly how long it is, but it, I think it's like eh, somewhere between 1 and uh, 42 miles. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's somewhere within that range. Um, the the acreage, like the whole testing facility, is um, 4,255 acres, somewhere around there. Uh, 
that oval that they got is seven and a half freaking miles. And uh, talk about high-speed ring, dude. That's amazing. Plus, they have a four and a half mile winding road course that will be completely demolished no 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 my friends refurbished uh apparently it was scheduled to reopen in april of 2016 but i really hadn't paid attention to it until i was you know hoping somebody would buy it my friends and i were joking about it back in 2010 when it closed like man well there goes that and so off the radar it went uh erased it off all my uh, radar screens I erased it off all of my whiteboard and sticky notes and uh, threw in the trash. So I was just curious about it because I was thinking about taking a road trip out there and seeing where the old gal was, seeing if you could still see it. Because back in the day, even planes and helicopters that flew over, they reported that they would see cars scrambling for cover. I mean, they were, this is like super top secret. And we're talking about over something that's like four and a quarter thousand acres, right? So, I mean, this is like nuts that they are just super secretive anytime a plane enters that sort of airspace. But at any rate, yeah, people would try the darndest things also to see what type of cars they were testing and see what type of body work and everything else they were trying out there. So I had read that they were going to use it for off-road stuff like quads and and, uh, side-by-sides and this and that. But now it's getting a $25 million reinvestment. It says investment, but I'm going to call it reinvestment because they're basically going to go out there and renovate the whole thing. It's really, really awesome, actually, I think, because where else can you test year-round? You know, it doesn't rain in this particular spot. Honda has built like a gigantic biodome over it. And, uh, yeah, they use it to design and engineer a lot of the cars, like the Honda and Acura stuff for the North American market and a lot of motorcycles and uh, high-performance, you know, do they do all their testing on those high-performance testing grounds. But, man, a fucking seven-and-a-half-mile oval. Like, that has got to be crazy, the type of speeds you could get up. I wonder what would happen if Guy Martin took a streamliner out there instead of Bonneville just on this seven and a half mile oval you know what what sort of speeds he could achieve out there on some paved uh honda proving grounds i bet they wouldn't let him do it in a triumph that's for sure but anyway i thought that was some interesting news from the world of car testing and all that great stuff the honda proving grounds you have to check it out it's way out to google map it i bet they have it blacked out i bet they have paid google to black it out So the last thing I really want to talk about in the motorcycle news field is the fact that Suzuki may be coming to the small displacement game, uh, let's see, probably in 2017, I'm guessing. So basically, what's happened is, like everything that's happened recently with, with small displacement bikes and stuff, out of India comes some news. Now, some patents had leaked, and I read on an Indian uh news site that the Suzuki Jixxer 250, rumored to be named the Suzuki GSX R250, uh, have emerged online. I don't know where they got them or for whatever, but it, you know, this is basically an entry-level sport bike uh, set to be pitted against stuff like the, the KTM Duke 200 and RC 200, which I'm guessing is only in the uh, Asian markets, uh, and specifically you know, this is coming out of India. So like the Southwestern Asian markets where a lot of this stuff comes out, not even in like Japan and stuff like that. So it's really interesting. So 
it'll be you know there's a huge huge market that's that's come out with the RC390 cup and the Ninja 300 the Ninja 250 the CBR 250R which of course we heard recently is becoming an RR and it's unclear whether that's going to be hitting the states too so this Jixer 250 is just another one of these things it's like is this going to be for another market that's not ours I'm not 100% sure like I said they just sent some patent photos and stuff like that so but basically they have a Jixer 150 as you know, everything is going to be required to have ABS that's over 125 cc's, so that's going to be happening. In the article, I think they patently stated that it's going to go after the KTM Duke 200, KTM RC 200, the Z250 and Ninja 300 from Kawasaki, and the Benelli 300, um, the CBR 250R, and what I'm guessing is going to be the RR and the YZFR3. No mention of the BMW G310, and I don't know if it's because that is... Uh, I don't know what they're looking at here. Maybe they're looking at the fact that, you know, it's um, parallel twin versus thumper. I'm not 100% sure. But at any rate, the bike already has some specs, apparently. And so when I was reading this article, they said basically... Uh, the horsepower is going to be, let me tell you what exactly, it's going to be 250cc, it's going to come right around uh, 24.6 horsepower with a six-speed tranny, it's going to be a single that's liquid-cooled, so not a twin, and they gave, you know, what's it say for mileage, 30 kilometers per liter, I don't know exactly what that is, because I don't drive kilometers at all. You may think... Well, yes, you do. You drive only your your speedo and your tack, or yeah, your tack indicates mileage. You know how tacks work. They're always indicating mileage. You know, your speedo is telling you miles per hour, and your odometer is telling you miles instead of kilometers. But you do drive kilometers simultaneously, right? To which I say, no. My bike's magic. It doesn't drive any kilometers while it's driving miles per hour. It's really weird how that works, but, you know, engineering shit. So anyway, yeah, this thing is going to have apparently a new swing arm, uh, a new badge, and GSX-R-inspired styling, and, of course, everything over 125, uh, for that market at least, has to have ABS, so it's going to have ABS. And look what else they say it's competing against. This competition includes the Bajaj Pulsar 200 NS. Hmm. So go figure. And so I really don't know if this thing's going to become a stateside, but I really thought it was kind of interesting that Suzuki's entering that little 250 market. I think it's it's one of these weird things that I don't know what racing series it would need homologation for or if it's part of their efforts to get back into a specific racing series that they're not in or if it's just the fact that worldwide smaller bikes are gaining some crazy momentum. And I've actually been reading a lot of stuff lately on people talking about keeping the 250 around, especially on dirt bikes, because of the speed and skill needed to ride one and the likelihood that you won't kill yourself like you will on a 450 if you're on a dirt bike or a uh, you know 1,000 or 600 if you're on a street bike. So I don't know. I don't know why this whole big push for smaller bikes, but it is interesting that Suzuki getting back in the game here with their little GSX-R 250. All right. Well, I think that's probably it for what I'm going to call part two of this episode, The Currently Eventful. 
I'm going to call this part three, Skulldale. Well, vapor is in the air, and just like in the wonderful town of Skulldale, we've all been duped, right? So I just wanted to say <laughs> that Scully, uh, of all people, is still making some rounds in the news as last week the former assistant was leaking secrets about the spending habits of the former founding members. And if you haven't read about this yet, uh, it appears that Scully still making rounds in the news sphere uh, due to a recent lawsuit being filed from within the company. And this lawsuit comes from um, Isabel... I'm going to screw up her name. Isabel Faithhauer. She was a former executive assistant to the Scully CEO, Marcus Weller. And she was uh, allegedly asked to falsify expense reports um, and practice fraudulent bookkeeping and was also not paid for any of the overtime uh, that she worked. And, you know, living hell working for a company making something that's not really something, right? I mean... I could, I've had friends that have been asked by motorcycle companies, which we will, will not name, to falsify stuff because, you know, they want it, want the company to look good. So that's basically what's happened here. Now, allegedly, this is all alleged at this point, the brothers have taken in millions or took in millions and spent much of those said millions on lavish trips, crazy cars, uh, strip clubs. Um, all in all, they pulled in $2,446,824, doesn't give any sense, from Indiegogo backers. And that's over, that's almost a thousand percent of what the original goal was. Uh, let me see, the figure here is 979%. Their original goal was only $250,000, and they had established that to get up and running, is what they said. So, oh, we need this, you know, and we're so happy and thankful that we've you know, got shit 2.5, almost million dollars. So it sounds like they had a little pre-party beforehand is what happened. And it's my assumption and my opinion only that they are like the typical dirtbags who don't really value money and investments in human capital. And perhaps they thought that they had the helmet game in the bag, so to speak. And that there was, was going to be plenty of money left over after they schmoozed and showed off to some of the investors with, you know, this whatever they embezzled out of the company. So at any rate, Scully making news, first off, because nobody got, I think they said they delivered like 20 helmets. And actually, the helmets were reviewed. The helmets were, uh, I think there was like five or so reviews on Scully. If you go to Scully dot com is that what it is? yeah I think it's Scully dot com they still have a website up they still have order forms they still have everything and the investors have said we're not gonna you know the they shuttered the doors on the company like two or three weeks ago already they just haven't taken down the sign I mean that's how the dire straits they are is that they haven't even paid anybody to go in and undo the site so you can still review it you can still pre-order you can still read all the great stuff that people said about them because scully is still up so in light of the the uh vaporware debacle here there's two other helmet companies one called fusar and one called rurock i'm probably mispronouncing those and they're offering to console the quote burn scully customers with their own products but apparently they're you know they don't live up to what scully was promising and when you dig down into what scully was promising i 
think I be- talked about this either the last episode or the episode before that. It really wasn't much because if you look at what the Scully had, some of that stuff wasn't dot legal. You got this little eyepiece, like an ocular thing sticking right up in front of your eye. And in a sort of a collision, that thing's going to gouge your eye out like a freaking melon baller, right? So, I mean, there was some stuff about it that was like, oh, ooh, Scully, great, great, yay, yay. At the same time, you know, they had some things here that unless you had a Scully, you weren't technically seeing all sides of the pie, so to speak. You know what I mean? So basically, I don't think Scully was or is the next big thing that we were waiting for, but it was definitely a step in the right direction to get all this HUD stuff moving that's supposedly be coming in the next few years. There's always Review, R-E-E-V-U, if you need a helmet where you can see behind you. So having said that, while the... Uh, investors were getting fleeced by the former execs of Scully. Bell actually has a 360 fly helmet that that it can record in 360 degrees. It can live stream footage. And apparently it's got haptic features that function as like a collision detection system to warn riders of movement outside their field of vision. And if you don't know what haptics are, it's like when you have your cell phone on... uh, you know, you're in the movies and you have it on vibrate or something. You get a little text message and it vibrates or it vibrates to let you know something's happening. That's basically what a haptic feature is. It's either a noise or a sound, a noise, which is a sound. Look that up in the dictionary. Um, or like a, some sort of like a sensation, like whether it's audible or actual tactile sensation to get your attention and say, hey, something's coming from over here. I believe there's on the Bell 360 Fly is a noise. So if there's something coming in from the side, you hear like a, probably like a, I'm guessing a sort of piezo noise, like, you know, and you kind of, hey, whoa, there's something, and it gets you to look in that direction because your brain senses the noise coming from that that area so they it basically looks bitching uh if you go to bell's website you can see footage of somebody riding with one of these on it's just amazing how you can switch the camera around i mean you know that's the new thing with like being able to pan around in a in a in a still shot or even in a video is just so great this helmet actually does it so it might not be like what the Scully was promising with rear view and stuff like that, but if the haptics work, then it will tell you, hey, there's something behind you, and at least you'll be aware of it. You know what I mean? You won't be able to see it, but at least you'll be aware of it. Use your mirrors, man. Don't be a dummy. Just That's what mirrors are for for right now. And speaking of, of public fleecings and vintage vap- vaporware, here's a story that's totally incredible yet 100% true. And this story comes straight from the bowels of L.A., right where we're coming to you from right now, in a place where tales are spun on the daily that can barely keep pace with the facts. In this classic case of he, she said. So we're going to jump back in our Wayback Machine, go back in time to 1973. Last time I talked about a historic event, I think I took you back to 1971. We talked about Little Johnny Campbell. So that that was a great year. We're going to go forward now two years. Something I didn't tell you about uh, back then is the uh, oil crisis. So in 1973, America fell into the throes of this global oil crisis. And to understand this problem, we need to go back in time. Like, way, way, way back. Way back. So, bleep, 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 insert crazy uh, time machine sound effect here. So, 
Oil, as we're told at least, comes from fossil fuel, which is literally just that. It's like the liquid byproduct of decomposed dinosaurs. Gold rest their souls, right? I literally did say gold rest their souls because colloquially that's what uh, oil is called is black gold. So let's run with that, shall we? So at any rate, apparently we can thank dinosaurs for the dang hoolies, motovlogging, and the 12 o'clock boys, not to mention every awesome squid video from Florida, right? Dinosaurs gave us those. They gave us the means to power these bikes that give us that. And though, although cavemen and or any bipedal humanoid, for that matter, never walked with dinosaurs. Uh, thanks, Land of the Lost, by the way, for leading me astray in my youth. I always thought that like cavemen rode dinosaurs, but they were millions and millions of years apart. So at, at any rate, thanks, Sid and Marty Croft. Um, I'd like to think that in some way, the cavemen contribute to our pool of refinable black goo because, you know, they they were fossilized too. Let's just face that, you know, fact right here. I'm I'm sure humans are old enough to have been part of the fossil fuel that we uh, we use. So sorry, great 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 grandpa Ugo for you know turning into some oil for me. But I'm loving shredding you up, bro. So anyway. And Sino Man wouldn't have been lucky enough to be discovered and thawed by the Wheeze back in the 90s. It's possible that he too could have been decomposed and helped me get a few more miles down the I-5 here in SoCal. But thankfully, he was thawed and Encino Man was made. So getting back to 1973, let's get out of the caveman days. Getting back to 1973, but staying in Encino... The American oil crisis was about to meet its match head-on, and that match would be championed by OPEC on the Ivan Drago side and G. Elizabeth Liz Carmichael playing the part of Rocky for the good old U.S. of A., baby. America! So, let's talk about Liz a little bit. Liz, she was a housewife in Encino. She was a really hardworking mother of five. She managed to earn a degree in mechanical engineering in her spare time, in 1974, she launched a company called the 20th Century Motorcar Corporation with a prototype called the Dale. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the Peterson Automotive Museum not only to check out their bitchin' new design and their motorcycle installations, but also to find the Dale because I have been there in a long time. It's probably been about six years ago I was there. And, dude, this was just like a blue-carpeted hotel building, really, with just like a bunch of old cars set up in there. Now it's like a modern... It's like the it's like a freaking Getty of uh, automotive stuff. It's so beautiful. The building's beautiful. The inside spaces are beautiful. They have, like, security guards walking around. It's incredible. They have ongoing project products and projects and they have this whole thing featuring how cars are even made now before they just had some really old cool collections and models and they used to just display those but it's like off the chain now so i didn't see the dale sitting there like it used to be it used to be just kicking it out with every other weirdo car that you could see and now they're going to just have to have something called like failures and flops or something for you to see it i guess because it's not there I also read some more about Liz. You know, the the thing I read about her was that not only did she earn a degree in mechanical engineering, she she knew some people from NASA. Uh, Her husband, she was a widow, and her husband um, 
maybe worked in the rocket industry. I forget. There's there's a couple details that I'm leaving out of this story because there's so many articles about her that each one kind of pieced together a different version of it. So there's uh, apparently this chick was just like a brilliant powerhouse of knowledge of space age stuff back in the 70s, right? So pretty incredible. Now, the Dale was one of many cars designed in the 70s to overcome the hurdles of the fuel economy and the mounting oil crisis. It was a three-wheeled aerodynamic masterpiece that would reach 60 to 70 miles per gallon and come in at a price just under 2000 bucks. I think 1995 is what the brochure said. Now, it was constructed this is this is where it varies too cuz some sources say uh, it was constructed from this new type of material called Reardon metal. It was an aerospace plastic substance that claimed to be able to withstand an impact with a brick wall at 50 miles per hour and be four times stronger than a Cadillac or something like that. And Liz actually claims to have driven the car into a wall at 30 or 35 miles an hour and like suffered not a scratch and the car didn't have a scratch or anything like that. Okay, so... The Dale brochure, which you can still find online, claims the car was capable of 85 miles an hour. It ran off of a two-cylinder, four-stroke, 850cc motor. Uh, Two trannies were available, one three-speed automatic or a four-speed manual. There was no wires in the car whatsoever. All of the electronics were printed on a circuit board and then just plugged in. Like the dash, everything in the dash was just plugged right onto the circuit board as a component. So it eliminated any wiring problems, any electrical problems that cars of the time experienced. It didn't explode like a Ford Pinto. So there you go for that. The glass was made of this stuff called Rigidex. And the body and the frame, as we said, were made from Reardon metal, but also in the in the um, brochure, it was referred to as rocket structural resin. Resin. So, depending on which source you talk to, or probably when you talk to the salespeople, they would either call it Reardon metal or structural resin. It doesn't matter. It's just it's a crazy principle. So. Liz herself said the only thing that could penetrate that car was a bullet. So, you know, claiming that it could withstand 50 mile an hour crashes into a brick wall, you can shoot this thing, and that's the only thing that'll make it through. So Liz herself was a pretty remarkable woman. She stood nearly six feet tall. She was super persuasive. Uh, I would say it almost sounds like she was she would buffalo people. You know, she was just one of those personalities that you couldn't resist. You know, you you say no and she won't take that. She's going to feed it back to you as a yes and you're going to eat it and like it. So over the years, she secured nearly $3 million in advanced sales in 1974. She incorporated the company in Nevada and she occupied a modern office suite on Ventura Boulevard in in Encino. She told a lot of the investors that she had rented three aircraft hangars where the production uh, would begin, and it was either in Burbank or Canoga Park, depending also on the accounts that you can, that you read. Um, and she had moved to a satellite location in Dallas, Texas. Now, she sold stock to investors and prospective buyers alike, claiming to have raised $30 million and planning on having 88,000 Dale units produced by the end of 1975. So, dude, this is like 74. She has $3 million in advance sales. And she's saying, I'm going to have 88,000 units in one year. And she gets $30 million, you know, just like that. 
Newsweek and People Magazine ran articles on her, or on the Dale in general, trying to generate interest in it, trying to boost momentum for the project. And according to one source, uh, the Dale was even a showcase showdown prize on The Price is Right in early 1975. Um Jumping back to 74, you know, this is, st- we're still in 74. She, you know, she started it in 73, 74, comes along, she's doing all this great stuff, promising everything for 75. The car appeared in the LA Auto Show in 75 too, so it's kind of unclear to me how all this goes down. But it wasn't long after they had this failed test run in late 1974 that the doors began to come off the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation and literally the Dale itself. Um... You know, late 74, the California Securities Commission stops the sales of stock because 20th Century really wasn't licensed to sell sell stock in the state or, like, issue it and sell it. You know what I mean? They didn't have any license to do that at all. Um, shortly after that, the California Department of Corporations accused her of illegally selling franchises to people and units of cars that were not, tan- like, didn't exist. Basically, they weren't even a tangible thing. But she's pre-selling units and selling off franchises to people that want to become dealers and that's where some of this 30 million dollars is coming from you know like the pre-sale of shit that doesn't exist does that remind you of scully a little bit you know what i mean so you know and she's claiming 30 million and that you know scully's claiming 2 million so i mean this chick is just like you know makes scully look pretty shameful and um so basically after having you know the California Securities Commission and the California Department of Corporations kind of check her out and start looking into things. These in- inquiries, these ensuing inquiries, prompted the DMV to get involved. And the DMV said that 20th Century had no license or permit to actually manufacture cars in the state. And therefore, like all their operations were illegal to begin with. You can't even, you know, you're selling stock, you're selling franchises, you're selling, you're pre-selling units. Uh, you don't even have a license to, to sell the stock. You don't even have a license to issue the stock. And not only that, but you're selling stock for the stuff that you don't even have a license to manufacture and you don't even have yet. So let's, you know, let's get to the bottom of this and find out. So, uh, I sourced this from unsolved.com, uh, which is unsolved mysteries website. And the following quotes are from Bill, Bill Hall, who was an investigator for the DMV at the time, uh, back in the, in the late 1974. And he, he visited the research and development lab followed by the production hangers. And this is, his quotes are sourced directly from unsolved.com. So uh, he says in his reports, quote, uh, we went to the research and development lab. Uh, people appeared to be busy, but in wandering through the lab, I saw no evidence that they were designing a vehicle or in the process of making a vehicle. <laughs> so that's one account. Uh, you know, some authorities started closing in some i think one of the news channels here in la did it started doing an investigative piece on liz and the dale and 20th century motor car corporation and you know things started to heat up and a little bit liz still never backed down still said that she was still going to sell sock stock and and socks and you know basically you know didn't believe in any bad publicity and just said listen i'm being misunderstood something's going on here uh i'm not backing down from this so 
go ahead and let's do these investigations, but I'm still going to go on with my, uh, you know, making the deal here. This is, this is going to work. So later Bill Hall went to the airport hangars and again, um, from unsolved.com, here's the quotes from his report. Quote, I went to the airport. I went to this airport. Upon entering, I discovered the hangars were absolutely empty. No tools, no machinery, nothing but a little dirt on the floor. They had rented this for only one month and the rent had now expired. So they actually did not have a factory uh, that they were representing that they had. So right about this time, everyone's closing in. The investigative piece comes down. I mean, this is, I believe, very, very early 1975. Liz flees to Dallas. You know, they have the other corporation there in Dallas, the headquarters. So that's where Liz goes. Two weeks later, though, the district attorney filed criminal grand theft auto charges against her. And meanwhile, back in California, Bill Hall, again, the investigator for the DMV, obtained a search warrant to execute upon the research and development lab of 20th Century Motor Car Corporation. And again, this quote is sourced from Unsolved.com from his report. He says, quote, On inspection of this vehicle, it was not a viable vehicle at all. It had no engine. Two by fours were holding up the rear wheel. The accelerator was just sitting on the floor. It wasn't even attached. The windows were not safety glass. They would bend back and forth. The doors were put on by regular door hinges, like ones you might find on a house door. And the vehicle just absolutely did not exist, end quote. So basically, there's no Rigidex, you know, Rigidex safety glass. The freaking... It's brilliant that the rear wheel was just held up by two by fours. You know, no, that's a what I call a hardtail. You know what I mean? So apparently, the model in the Encino lobby was of the same quality and non functionality as the one Bill Hall had encountered. And although I didn't put this part in my notes, I had read that they, the Dales that they had tried to test did not work. And of course, that one. The the one that failed in late 74, which got everyone asking, is this really going to work? Obviously, that one didn't run very well. It didn't even make it like three miles. I had to get towed back to uh, the headquarters in Dallas after about like, tw- I don't know, like, let's say 20 minutes or something like that. Um, and the models that she was using to sell to the public was actually uh, Dale Clift was the original inventor or designer of the Dale, and that's where it got its name from, partially. And Liz Carmichael had bought it from him and then used his test footage of out uh, in El Mirage Dry Lake Bed running his little model around. And the, like, the prototype of the prototype, that's what she used to sell these Dells, Dales that she was then going to be making and selling. So it wasn't even a video of the working car that she had. It was someone else's prototype from you know a little bit before that she had bought. So it's just awesome how all that worked out. In late January of 1975, uh, 20th Century Motor Car Corporation's public relations representative, William Miller, was murdered by a co-worker uh, named Jack Oliver. Oliver shot Miller four times in the head, and shortly afterward, the discovery was made that the two had been to, 
uh, in prison together in San Quentin. So here you have these two cons working for uh, Liz Carmichael as her, you know, salesman or whatnot. Every, everybody was a salesman uh, and public relations officer. And they just, you know, who knows what happened. But man, they, these guys had time together. Now they're doing this together. And it's just like two con men working in an office. Who knows who else is working there? You know what I mean? These are everybody in that office, I'm assuming, was in the know to some degree. So in February, this is late January that that happens. In February, other top execs are getting to be arrested for fraud, conspiracy to uh, commit theft. And according to one online article that I found, Liz Carmichael and 20th Century Motorcar Corporation would put out ads in the local newspapers for positions at the company. And when the applicants came in to, you know, apply for the job and whatnot, instead they would sell stock to these guys or, and, and tell them, you know, now they work for the company or they own stock in the company. And, uh, you know, there was no position for them, but, but now they're an investor. So that's even better. You know what I mean? Make money off nothing. Just give me a little dough. And now you're, now you're a, uh, you own stock. So after these arrests, the judge ordered the company into receivership, which reminded me of Buell, you know, although Buell didn't bilk anybody, you know, but we all, after the Buell debacle, we all know what receivership is now. Um, means someone could probably buy it later. I'm guessing, and the Dallas Sheriff's Department, they went looking for Liz Carmichael since she had, you know, she had fled California to Dallas when all this started going down. Things got really bad, you know, while she's there, but um, she had disappeared. And when they got to her house, I think they literally said dinner was still on the table. So she got a tip that they were coming and bailed with her five kids. Um, and it was this, this time, and they, the police found some questionable items in her home. Uh, in April of 1975, she was eventually arrested, and it was at this time that she was also identified as Jerry Dean Michael, a man wanted for jumping bail and counterfeiting. And she was convicted for all charges from her life as a man, and now she faced new criminal charges. And, you know, the proceedings started. And in 1975, after posting a $50,000 bail, Liz disappeared again into the ethos. And it wasn't until 1989, after NBC aired its Unsolved Mysteries episode dedicated to her fraud and disappearance, that she was captured again in Dale, Texas, spelled just like the car. And it's so funny that Liz Carmichael was um, Jerry Dean Michael as a, as a man. And so... Uh, it's a really interesting story. She was found selling flowers at a roadside stand, and uh, that's how they caught her. And uh, I forget how long she served, but it wasn't really that long, I don't think. I think she got out afterward, shortly afterward. She played, paid a little bit of restitution, served a little bit of time, and apparently is living somewhere again. Now, I didn't put in any of this in the story because it's kind of does not matter, but you're probably wondering does all this have to do with Scully? You know, so what some lady bilked people out of millions of bucks. Scully did the same thing, right? So that's, is that the connection to motorcycling? Well, not, not a hundred percent. It turns out that that Dale, that was a total hunk of crap was made out of fiberglass and this, the, uh, structural resin frame and body. The body was mostly fiberglass. The windows were not rigid X. They were just a, crappy plastic stretched over the door frame inside the, the actual chassis and frame was just welded aluminum like 
square tube aluminum, I think. Like like you heard the guy say, the doors were just held on with some uh, like household door hinges from a hardware store. The front end, which she said she smashed into a wall at 35 miles an hour, and it had like some sort of... Mm, I forget exactly the type of foam that she was claiming that it had, but it was some sort of like impact absorbing self-sealing foam. Oh, and the paint would never scratch because it was kind of like a motorcycle where uh, it was molded into the plastic. You know what I mean? And this is a time when injection molding was like kind of just taking off. Most stuff was like painted, you know, painted plastics, but this is like the beginning of all that. So, you know, the, 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 the paint won't scratch because when you scratch it, it's actually part of the car, you know? So it's basically like injection molded, uh, painted like motorcycle plastics are. And it turns out that's not true either. It was just some fiberglass over some plywood and, and literally the motor, the two cylinder, uh, opposed twin 850 CC turned out to be a BMW motor. And if you look at the original brochure of the Dale, the way they have it pictured is just like sitting straight up. Like it just doesn't even like the drive shafts, not even go anywhere. It's so funny. Whoever drew that manual did, did not know how like a motor, a motorcycle engine worked or how a drive shaft worked for any car. So it was just totally stupid. I mean, it's just so funny, but at this time when the oil crisis is happening and OPEC is formed and it's like, they got us by the balls, man, or by the titties as it were, whoever, you know, uncle Sam or, mother america so at any rate you know they they got us in their grips and we need a little car a lot of cars came out of this time period too i was reading an article from 1975 about uh about elizabeth carmichael and right underneath it volkswagen had an electric hybrid van again that they were trying to make it had a big old electric motor on the on the back axle and a gas motor on the front axle so it's like dudes they were experimenting with hybrids way back then trying to get this oil crisis thing down apparently what happened is america subsidized oil and the car makers also wanted oil uh you know People in Texas didn't want, and Houston, I'm assuming the Houston Oiler football team that used to be around, you know, we it was a big thing. People were selling a lot of it. They didn't want it to go away, so they kind of, like, cheapened it. Oil crisis ends, you know, hybrid electrics go on the back burner until years and years later. So we'll get into all that at, at some point. We'll get into, um, I think it was Reagan that had people start using infrared film or, and thermal imaging to... Uh, to take pictures of the environment in the in like 1980 or something like that to see what we were doing when people first started. You know, Richard Nixon, his administration was responsible for the EPA, and shortly thereafter, we really started to look into pollution in the 80s really well. So it, it's interesting that this is like the predecessor to all that, trying to make a efficient car out of a motorcycle, and this is like uh, probably Scully helmets used could have used this as like a model of how to work you know get investors get all this money make a couple that kind of work and there was only three dales ever made by the way and i think one of them uh apparently the peterson still has but they probably have it like in a dusty back room somewhere and uh as far as liz carmichael it's funny that you know, as a man, her last name was Michael, and then you just put car in front of it, arrested in Dale, Texas. And from what I heard on a, a, a podcast, history podcast I listened to, she was born there. I'm not 100% sure that was true, but she was in Dale when she got 
uh, arrested and could be because she was familiar with the town, but just pretty incredible, uh, in general, just like the bilking of people and it's nothing new. And we act like Scully is like this big, um, I don't know, this big villain when it's been going on as PT Barnum said, right? There's a sucker born every minute. So yeah, I hope that was kind of a lesson, you know, that we can learn from the past and also, uh, motorcycle related in the weirdest way that the Dale was powered by a BMW 850 CC motor. I really, I really was looking for that car at the Peterson. I was bummed that I couldn't find it just because I wanted to get a picture of that motor. But at any rate, well, hey, listen, man, it has been uh, a little over an hour and 20 minutes, and I know you probably want to get back to horking down that pizza and watching the Peoria TT. So I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to get out of your hair. I've enjoyed blabbing to you this week. Sorry, this podcast is coming out not on the day that it usually does, and by the time you hear it, it may be um, October. Who knows? So at any rate, uh, take it easy, and we'll see you on the flip side. Uh, this week's catchphrase comes to us from Paul in Budapest, and it's uh, ape hangers with Hungarians on them. <laughs> That's not it. Let me let me stop recording and check what it is. It's Cecilia uh, from the sidecar, ape hangers and Hungarians. All right, peace and grease, homeboys and homegirls. All right, everyone. I hope you've sincerely enjoyed this episode of Creative Writing. And stay tuned for next week. We're going to change up the format a little bit. Uh, You'll have to listen in next week to see uh, what's happening, some changes here. And we'll be talking about the Peoria TT, of course. We'll go over a first-hand account of the WIR Top 10 Bikes at the RSD Drags that happened on August 5th with the field producer Steve Mankiewicz. And we'll be running a couple new things, so stay tuned for that. All right, let's get to our sorry list. Creative Writing, we'd like to thank the following individuals. Warren Massey, stick around to the end. Uh, AB51, we are sorry. GSXR250, we are sorry. The WIR Top 10 Bikes, we are sorry. Scully Helmets, we're sorry. Marcus Weller and Isabel Faithhauer, we are also sorry. Jerry Dean Michael slash G. Elizabeth Carmichael, we're sorry. William Miller and Jack Oliver, we are sorry. Indiegogo, we apologize, we're sorry. Dirtbags, we're sorry. Fusar and Rurock Helmets, we are sorry. Encino Man, we are sorry. The Weasel, we are totally sorry. Dinosaurs, we're sorry. Speaking of dinosaurs, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, we're sorry. The EPA, we're sorry. Jared Meese and Roland Sands, we're sorry. The Buffalo Chip, we are sorry. OPEC, we are sorry. And that's the oil producing and exporting countries, not to be confused with any other OPEC that may be out there. Ivan Drago, we are sorry. And Rocky, sorry as well. Davis Fisher, we're sorry. Reardon Metal, we are sorry. Sammy Halbert, our apologies, we're sorry. Brian Smith, sorry. Heat and dehydration, we are sorry. 20th Century Motorcar Corporation, we are sorry. The Dale, or owners of the Dale, we are sorry. 
Kenny Coolbeth, we're sorry. Brad Baker, we're sorry. Rigidex, our apologies, we're sorry. 850cc BMW Motors, we're sorry. The Ford Pinto, we are sorry. The Price is Right, we're sorry. Bill Hall, if you're out there, we're sorry. Adventure Rider Radio and the Doghouse Radio, we are sorry. And most of all, Warren Massey, please, don't come a knocking. <laughs> we love your show. We are sorry. That's it. Talk to you guys next week. Stick around. See the big changes that are going to come. And I uh, hope you enjoyed this show. Until next time, friends. Bye-bye. Uh, what did they make that was big? Cookies. And, you know, I was on the Facebooks again. Bikes are the... Let me see. Seeing uh, Roland talking about, you know, it's so fun to watch these guys talk smack on uh, Facebook mostly. Unless you're... Uh, everybody makes mistakes. He, he it, it did...